Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios in another beautiful post-Hurricane Ian, Florida day. It is the 21st of October, 2022, and I'm joined, I'm honored to be joined by an old friend and colleague, Brett Stevens, who has joined us from New York. Uh, Brett, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Chris. Always a joy. So we'll dive right in. You know, uh, you know, we go back to the University of Chicago together, and for years you were op-ed writer for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and you've written this great book, American Retreat, and a bunch of other stuff. What are you working on now? Maybe give us a little background so my few listeners who are unaware of your work can get a sense of what you've done. Uh, well, I guess most people think of me as the conservative columnist at the New York Times. Um, for many of my friends on the right, that isn't conservative enough. And for my <laughs> some of my friends on the left, it's way too too conservative. Um, and I joined the Times in April of 2017. So next year will be six years. Um, and uh, time flies when you're making enemies. Uh, and uh, I, a couple of years ago, started a new uh, Jewish journal called Sapir, which uh, you can find at Sapir Journal, S-A-P-I-R, sapirjournal.org, which is um, subtitled Ideas for a Thriving Jewish Future. Um, uh, my, my, my Jewish life has been a big part of who I am for, for many, many years since I was editor in chief of the Jerusalem post 20 years ago. Mm. And, um, and then I'm working on a book, uh, about, um, how, uh, societies flourish. Um, and, um, I won't give any of that away, but that's the, that's the sort of the third thing I do in addition to helping my wife raise our three lovely kids and um, occasionally puttering around my lawn. Beautiful, beautiful. And that's the suburbia grants the opportunity to play with a lawn. That's fun. Yes, I know. To have a lawn is itself uh, kind of a luxury. And I've got a field because I live in an old farmhouse and I just let the field go. Uh, and uh, and occasionally uh, some deer like to uh, you know, make their home there. Splendid. And are you hunting from your back porch or would that make your neighbors nervous? <laughs> no, it's not my thing. Uh, you know, I'm 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 very soft hearted when it comes to the mammalian life around here. Fair enough. Fair enough. Then we'll I'll 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 leave my guns in the trunk when I come visit. Um on the uh on the superior, you recently wrote something called The Merit of Meritocracy, which I found pretty compelling. Um and maybe we could dive into that a little bit in terms of yeah, well, both what Sapir is about as a journal, but um, the the case you made, uh, I guess, contra the current woke trend towards sort of equality of outcomes versus starting an equal level playing field, if I might gloss that correctly. Yeah, so um, every issue of Sapir looks at a single um, topic very closely. So our last issue was about education. The issue before that was about Zionism. And we look at it from a variety of angles. And we had solicited an interview with Michael Sandel, a very significant Harvard political philosopher who had written a book called The Tyranny of Merit, best-selling book. Mm -hmm. And it, I, 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 Michael's a sophisticated, thoughtful uh, guy who has... Um, important arguments to make about how the American culture can risk overvaluing merit or at least a particular concept of merit at the expense of other values. But as I went over our interview, it provoked some thoughts of my own in an opposite direction. And so I wrote this piece, The Merit of Meritocracy, uh, because I think that what there, there's a uh, fallacy that the opposite of a meritocracy is a fairer society. Uh, my argument is that the opposite of a meritocracy is both a less fair society, mm. as well as a society shot through with mediocrity and incompetence that can be extraordinarily damaging. So, you know, I grew up in Mexico City. This is something not a lot of people know. And in Mexico, um, on the surface, you had actually a fairly socialist society. Everyone had access to a fairly broad, uh, a, a big state, uh, you know, set of healthcare uh, provisions and social security and so on. 
But the reality is if you wanted a good doctor in Mexico, you had to have inside information and you often had to have money. Right. And uh, one of my fears is that as we move away from a meritocratic society, right, where there's more of an emphasis on both equity and so-called access or, 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 or fairness, um, the merit-based society isn't going to go away. It's just going to go underground. And right. it's going to be up to well-connected people to gain access to the best medical services, the best, the best kinds of education, um, the best of everything. Uh, of course, for a price. That's 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 the reality. Um, so I worry about us as a society moving away from standards that had used to um, uh, help uh, reinforce an idea of merit, like SATs and ACTs being mandatory in terms of the in terms of uh, schools, uh, like the idea of tracking in uh, public schools at, at the elementary and high school level so that the best students in given subjects can um, can move more quickly uh, in terms of their academic uh, achievements, in terms of maintaining standards in the law profession, medical profession, one thing after another. Um, and I worry about this in particular for um, talented minorities who have historically outperformed their uh, share of the over uh, of the overall population 50 60 years ago those talented minorities often were jews today there are indians there are nigerians there are east asians and so on. highly highly driven to take advantage of the opportunities afforded by a culture that does reward individual excellence and that's exactly it and what has made america great is that while we believe in democracy and fairness we reward excellence that, that is, in fact, the distinguishing feature of the society, uh, whether it's excellence in business or excellence in, in scientific achievements or, or whatever. So we're moving away from that, I think, at head-turning speed. I think there's been a cultural revolution in this country in the last five or six years. And I think it's doing a lot of damage to some of our touchstone um, institutions um, uh, in a way that will be difficult uh, uh, to recover from. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting the 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 comment about it being five or six years. I would argue it was making this argument twenty five years ago. Um, sitting at the University of Chicago, realizing that the professors I was I was studying with, who were teaching Marx, were actual Marxists. They weren't they weren't examining Marx the way I was as a you know critical thinker looking at you know how did someone so bright get it so wrong, and moreover, have so many people who took some ideas that weren't actually that crazy and turned them into, you know, the Soviet Holocaust, for example. Uh, so it's no surprise to me that this is a trend that, that has finally flourished, right? It's Can't funny. I, I, think, I think I know, I know exactly the professor you're speaking of um, uh, because I was in that same undergraduate seminar. But even then there was a, there was a sense at the university that when we examine someone like Marx, we we took it as a given that it was a lens through which to see the world, not exactly. lens. Exactly. And that's a hugely critical distinction. I mean, one of my concerns about critical race theory isn't that it's being taught. I'm not opposed to teaching critical race theory as a lens through which to try to understand the experience of race and racism in the United States. What bothers me is a very sneaky effort to say, this is the only way in which one can see and one can understand our history. And it's at that point where pedagogy becomes uh, propaganda and indoctrination. And that's, that's I think, what has changed really in the last six or seven uh, years. The ability to say that a particular point of view is just one among many which deserve uh, more or less equal respect, right, has gone away. And we're now, dealing with um, ideologues at every level of the classroom, starting at an astonishingly young age, elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, shoving down the throats of unsuspecting kids a worldview, and they don't even have the opportunity to understand that there's another way of seeing things. And you compound that with the fact, and this is what I, I try to explain to people who don't, who don't get the drift of leftist politics, right, is that for the left, the revolution is always permanent and history moves in one direction. 
and which is why they do stupid things like, well, get rid of the filibuster. Well, it never occurs to them that maybe you're going to be in the minority someday and that's not going to be a good idea. Baked into their whole arc of history as described by Marx is it's only going one way. So, in, and oddly, it's, it's, it's religious-like in how they look at change comes. I do think, encouragingly, at least being in Florida, there's a backlash, right? And part of the backlash is um, you know, Ron DeSantis signed a bill that had nothing to do with him. That was purely driven by parents who, during the brief period of shut, school shutdowns we had here, only a couple of months, parents for the first time were in the classroom. Grammar school parents were hearing some of this insanity. And then they decided to create this parents' right bill. Well, you can tell the left hates it because they immediately started screaming about the don't say gay bill. A, it's not the sense of the bill. B, it says nothing about homosexuality. Zero. It was all about parents having the ability to kind of hear what teachers are saying, right? Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia because the idea that the FBI was going to call parents who were concerned about teaching nonsense domestic terrorists, he won an election based on that. So I'm slightly encouraged that there is a pushback to more of the extreme elements of this. Um, but their goal is to go completely straight to one direction. Right. And 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 at their most um, uh, sincere, they will say and have said outright, I think an MSNBC host said this, uh, parents uh, don't have rights to their children. Oh, yeah. And, you know, maybe on a kibbutz they don't or didn't uh, uh, 80 years ago. But they gave that up too because it didn't work because the nuclear but, family... But we sure as hell did. Uh, we sure as hell do. And, and, and so... Uh, Democrats, especially the Democratic Party has become as much a captive of the progressive left, although it's loath to admit it, yes. as Republicans have become a captive to the Trumpy right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I apologize to no one for my views about the former president and what he did to the Republican Party, both ideologically and I think intellectually as well. I mean, uh, I'm proud of my record. But you have to look at the Democratic Party and say, you know, we elected Joe Biden to be a kind of moderate transition figure, right. not a radical LBJ held captive by the by the uh, uh, left wing fringe of of the congressional caucus. Um, but that's in turn that's actually what we ended up what we ended up getting, and the left's inability to understand that they, um, you know, that they are so much farther left than, never mind Bill Clinton, than Barack Obama. Oh, right? craziness. Yeah, he's out there telling people to relax and calm down and a joke is a joke and don't get people fired because you're a snowflake. That's right, coming but just, from Barack. But, but, but look <laughs> at something, and, and look at something like the border. Um, oh, madness. Well, Barack Obama, under his administration, deportations, I think reached record highs. I'd have to go back and, and double check that. But it was, uh, Barack Obama was not afraid of in, the concept of enforcing a border. Yep. You now have a Democratic Party, which simply doesn't believe in it because it would look mean, right? Well, they just did not. At the same time, they gaslight all of America by telling us it's not happening. I kind of give them wild credit for a degree of, you know, Orwellianness that he himself wouldn't have promulgated. <laughs> they just lie. I mean, I, I was life. not, uh, I found myself dismayed by the stunt of taking 50 oh. people and shipping them to the vineyard. Human beings should not be used as props ever. My mother was a refugee to this country. That being said, the reaction in the liberal world, oh my goodness, awesome. what are we going to do with 50 Venezuelans or wherever they were from in Edgartown was beyond parody. Yep. It was just absolutely beyond parity. These are people who have no idea that they have obligations to the citizens of Yuma, Arizona, right? right? Or other places along the border, which are receiving not tens, but thousands of people every day. And as my own colleague, Megan Stack, you know, has put, uh, has, has pointed out, it's not, it's not just governors Abbott and DeSantis who are shipping people north. It's Hispanic Democrats who are mayors of, of, oh, yeah. uh, in in El Paso and other and other cities along the border, who are doing it because they can't handle it. So now New York City, under a Democratic mayor Eric Adams, is declaring a state of emergency 
And the folks around this part of the country are kind of waking up and going, oh, yeah, something's amiss, right? Right. Um, uh, and this is this is just kind of one symptom of a democratic or progressive mainstream, which simply seems to have no contact with with the reality as <clears throat> as the rest of America finds it. It's a it's a let them eat cake Marie Antoinette view. Oh yeah, on with a sans culotte. Absolutely, my, my wife puts it beautifully. She declared a long time ago that all these people um, lives what she calls theoretical lives. Right? It's easy to spout uh, happy nostrums on Facebook about human rights, but like the reality is, and it was it's funny about the, the fifty folks sent it to, to Martha's Vineyard. I don't find it that horrible because, frankly, you know, the, the Biden administration was putting thousands of immigrants on planes in the middle of the night and landing them in Florida and landing them in Westchester, landing them all over the place. Uh, and DeSantis made a decision to make a point, right? Um, and quite bit, many of them have been put on buses, which are a lot less comfortable. So is, is it annoying? Sure. But like they did come here and they did want to come to another country. And does it really matter whether they went to Mexico or Martha's Vineyard? Not really. At least they made the point. I think they made the point beautifully. Well, the other the other perversity. I mean, I've always been in favor of a very uh, liberal uh, immigration system. I think this country benefits hugely from oh, absolutely from its yeah. immigrants. I think, um, and at every level of the income ladder. By the way, it's not just the German or Norwegian PhDs. Uh, it's also people with very little education, very little money, who just come with a lot of drive and energy and big yeah. dreams, the way my grandparents and great-grandparents uh, uh, came. I'm all for that. But I insist that you come in through the front door, give me your name, uh, and give me a fair sense of who you are and whether you have a criminal record or not, and why you're here, and what do you intend to do. Uh, not through my back door. I want I want guests, not squatters. And I, I don't understand how that principle eludes so many of my friends on the left. Another thing I heard, which put my jaw on the floor, was someone said, well, you know, there's a lot of space in this country, which is true. True-ish. But people don't come and live in tents off the land. They need bathrooms and schools and hospitals and roads and jobs and an entire infrastructure to accommodate them. Yeah. And then the ultimate question is, well, if you really if you're really uh, um, serious about your principles, you should eliminate the border and you should basically say to all of Latin and South America, you're welcome to come here. Yeah. And is that what you want to do? I don't think so. And 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 of course, <laughs> the, the, the moment you say this, you're running the risk of being accused of racism, right? Which 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 compounds the insult. Um, so so this gets back to the original point that progressives have this major problem of not recognizing the extent to which they represent a form of extremism, which is just anathema to the, I suspect, the broad majority of Americans. Oh, big time. And what I find even more appalling is they're, well, busy scolding us that those people who want, you know, rational immigration policy, which we do want because replacement rates of birth and all the rest in this country, yeah. we do want more people coming in. If Social Security is ever going to survive, we need a lot more workers on the on the lower end, end of the age distribution. Um, but what, what I find so appalling is they're busy scolding me that I'm a mean person and predictably racist in some way, um, is that we're enriching you know, cartels and coyotes and traffickers who prey on these poor people. And yeah. uh, we're not, it's not just this, this, this wonderful idea, never mind the fentanyl pouring across the border, never mind the fact that statistically, uh, as, as we saw during the Cuban boat, you know, the boat lift, that was brilliant. I mean, Castro emptied out the prisons of the insane asylums and he dumped them on the boats and sent them to Florida. And we we dealt with that mess as you know shown so beautifully in Scarface uh, for years. And now that I'm a Florida resident, I spend more time in Miami. Like it, it was two decades of recovering from that. And though you know, one really crazy, evil-driven criminal outweighs five thousand hardworking immigrants that show up. And so. The yeah, and, and the worst ways. of it is, of course, that ultimately the policies bring about the very thing that progressives claim to fear the most, which is to say the populist reaction yep. and overreaction to um, a uh, 
an absolutely lawless immigration policy. You know, you really don't want Trump? Well, then do something at the border and show you're doing something at the border to prove that he doesn't have a point. Yep. But instead, they seem absolutely intent on proving that he does, right? They seem intent on um, essentially conforming to the caricature that's been painted uh, yes. about them by by the right. So ultimately, the politics of the far left inevitably invites the populism of the far right, and usually the far right wins. The best, the, the, the quickest invitation to fascism is, is a sudden cultural, social, and economic jolts to the left. Oh, yeah. Crazy just sort of drives that. I've got a, a quick question, kind of off that, but you raised the keyword. Um, what are your thoughts on what I've taken to calling January 6th, the musical, now playing in the, in the, in the, uh, in the DC theater? Well, uh, I think January 6th was one of the most disgraceful episodes in American history. I wrote on January 6th, uh, the title of my column, you can find it easily on the internet, is Impeach and Convict Right Now. Yeah. Um, I wish uh, people like Mitch McConnell uh, and Lindsey Graham had had the courage of their January 6th convictions a couple weeks down the road when, or a month down the road when impeachment came, uh, came up. I think, uh, to my own surprise, I didn't expect it, but I learned a lot from the January 6th hearings. Um, uh, things that uh, details which you know didn't didn't fundamentally alter my picture of things, but I think uh, enforced or reinforced uh, the uh, conviction that uh, Donald Trump had you know more than passing culpability, but this was his this was his doing that he endangered the lives of Mike Pence and every other member of Congress, Republican as well as Democrat, uh, Democrat Democratic members of Congress. Um, uh, so I don't like to think of it as a musical. I think it was an important exercise in democratic account accountability. And it's dismaying to me that so many people in the Republican party, looking at one Republican figure after another testifying here, Judge Ludig, you know, as a conservative judicial icon, you know, just to take to take uh, one example, um, uh, the you know figures who voted for Trump, many you know many others, uh, testifying to the outrageous conduct of the former of the former president. Um, I'm sorry that we got away from. Uh, from accountability on January 6th. And I'm deeply sorry that more Republicans uh, haven't figured out that Trump has been toxic for what conservatism is. Um, but, you know, this is politics today. So uh, it is, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I, I've realized, you know, when you suddenly realize you get to a certain age and you say, geez, you know, I'm a creature of the 20th century. I'm like, this is, you know, this I, is. Uh, yeah. World War II still means something to me. Yeah, exactly. I'm be getting old. Um, it's it's fascinating. What I find found so distressing about, and the reason I somewhat mockingly call it January 6th, the musical, is because the the absence of due process instantly kind of kind of put in danger any of the rational outcomes that might have come. If you believe in the truth, you're not afraid of the process. And for the first time ever, the uh, majority party refused to seat. The choices, the committee choices put forward by the minority party. Whether you like Jim Jordan or not, he's not a stupid man, right? And the, and if you thought that you were that 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 the end result of this investigation was going to come to say the 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 ideas that you got about the culpability of Tr President Trump, then put Jordan there. Let him be there to cross-examine. The moment they refused to allow a differing view, half the country switched off to stop listening. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point, I, except that by choosing someone like Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy was essentially signaling that he was going to that his interest was in turning the, the, the hearings into a kind of a, you know, a clown and monkey show. Um, I mean, I've seen Jim Jordan in action before. There, There is a spectrum of Republicans somewhere between Jim Jordan and Adam Kinzinger, with whom he could have. You know, toward whom he could have 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 turned. Basically, sober Republicans who maybe voted for Trump twice and right. uh, and had more credibility. 
But uh, look, it, it's absolutely fair. There should be more by way of um, cross exam. You know, uh, members no of cross examination. It is from a process standpoint that, and that has been my major critique: is that why should I believe any of this? And the, the most, you know, the lunatic that shot up Parkland High School was entitled to a defense and cross examination. Right. This is a deeply, whether you like it or not, right? We were if we're, we're going towards the point of weaponizing the judiciary against political opponents of this country, again, justified or not, right? LBJ made the made the decision to just let Nixon skate, whether he was criminally culpable or not. It was bad for the republic to be one more country that puts former leaders in jail, and we're not going to do that, right? That's my that's my overarching concern, and and as as you know, my brilliant wife will often say, "Please don't put me in the position of defending Donald Trump," and because that you don't want to make a martyr of him, you don't want to make any of his points resonate intelligently, and the lack of process has really has, has skewed it, I think, and that's the problem. No matter yeah, what they I come think, up with. look, that's that. Nonetheless, I think until Mar-a-Lago, uh, the the raid on Mar-a-Lago, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I do think that the January 6th committee had moved the needle with a lot of Republicans. You saw that in a growing sense up until that raid, that the Republican Party would be better off having a different standard bearer in 2024. Oh, absolutely. The man and, has got and, to go. <laughs> uh, and and uh, again, I would have wished that Kevin McCarthy had chosen, had selected some Republicans who were going to do their duty much more soberly than a guy like Jim Jordan uh, would 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 have done. Um, uh, that that didn't happen, and so the process was flawed at the start. Nonetheless, I found testimony, much of the testimony, extraordinarily compelling. And whether there was a the right cross examination or not, these were all Republicans testifying against the former president. This was not a bunch of Democrats yeah, yeah. who were in the administration who worked for Ted Cruz and worked for Mike Lee and, 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 and had served the Republican Party and President Trump quite faithfully for, for many years before he got up, got up there. So it's, it wasn't a judicial process. It was essentially, yes, you are right, in a sense it was theater, but it was a highly informative theater. And I learned even more than I thought, uh, uh, than I, thought I would. What I think... <clears throat> The point that you're making that is very compelling to me is um, that I think that the Justice Department has radically overstepped. Whoa, they got to go. I mean, it's I just had Harvey Silverglade on the show a few days ago, and he's long yeah. been a, crit a, crit a critic of the FBI. I mean, he thinks they've been awful since day one. So he's consistent. But the recent actions are appalling. I think it's a look. First of all, to me, there's no question. You know, Trump is is doing what Trump does. Uh, he he is you know the great. Uh, I mean, Maggie Haberman, my colleague, uh, you know, made the point. Trump is a is a pack hound. It's like this is mine, and I'm not giving it back. The idea that Trump sat there reading through this doc, you know, these documents, and has a good idea of what's in there. Oh no, nonsense. He he couldn't have. If, if there were a quiz. On what's in box four, he would have no yeah. idea. No He'd idea. No idea. He's Not a kid idea. clutching a box and saying it's mine. It's mine. On the other hand, he also has some kind of reptilian sense that in clutching that box, he is going to force his opponents to overreact in ways that provide him with advantages. And they, they did. I mean, part of my critique of that whole Mar-a-Lago insanity is having spent a lot of time working in the swamp with a lot of good people, right? Who, who people are working hard to advance American interests, is that if you've ever dealt with top secret material, 99% of it is stamped that way because the current politician doesn't want you to see it. Doesn't mean that it's that important. Doesn't mean that it matters anything to national security. And sadly for them, the president is the ultimate authority under our system. And he could have waved his fingers over it all and said, these are not classified anymore. So the overreach in that raid and the optics of raiding a former president's home were disastrously misinformed, I think. Well, they were disastrously misinformed. I think also on the constitutional merits, you are you are right. Uh, ultimately, the president can declassify anything he wants. And if, uh, as you said, he waved his fingers. 
the constitutional issue takes precedence over whatever paperwork yeah. ordinarily gets signed. Secondly, the idea that something that's stamped top secret is what any normal person, what's stamped top secret is on the front pages of the New York Times every single day. Every single day. Every <laughs> single day. Yep. And anyone who has any understanding of the way the executive branch works know that when a program is really sensitive, right? When it's really, when it's genuinely secret, there's a whole different world of procedures in order to ensure, or at least reasonably ensure that it remains, uh, that, that it remains a, a, a secret, right? All, all, all conversations in government, except, you know, those that are actually public are essentially secret, right? That's, that's the way- As they should be, that's how it functions. That, that's the way it, it But it created this perception that Trump had, you know, carried away boxes of, I don't know, blueprints for our next, you know, stealth bomber or something right. like that, yeah. which is, just, it's just farcical. Yep. Um, and, and it's, it's farcical, but farcical in a way that gullible people are likely to believe it. At any rate, again, this is one, another example of um, this administration um, overstepping and harming itself because there is no way on earth, again, literally, unless Trump was trying to sell plans for the B-21 bomber to the Chinese, there's no way on earth that any jury is going to convict oh. Trump for, for doing this. So what you're doing is turning him into a martyr. And also there are precedents for this kind of mishandling of classified information, Sandy Berger, uh, uh, if you oh, remember him. He shoved it in his socks and his underwear and walked out of the archives. Exactly. And at the end of the day, he, he, he copped basically, there was no jail time. It was a minor, a relatively uh, uh, minor plea of mishandling classified uh, classified documents. Uh, that's, that's what it's going to be. So maybe at the most Machiavellian level, I'm thinking that the Democrats want Trump to be the standard bearer in 2024 because they think right the way they've been funding him. MAGA Republicans in primaries hoping that they're the right. candidate looks crazy but that's exactly <laughs> what they wanted in 2016 when they figured oh we can easily beat this 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 yeah. this clown they Trump paid no attention to him all of a sudden there were three standing like wait a minute he's gonna win yeah <laughs> whoa wait a minute yeah well <laughs> They're they're the proverbial dog that catches the car all day long. And he, and related to that, I want to get you question your thoughts on this. So, I've I've waffled back and forth, but I have now, especially in America, I've I've become a strict free speech absolutist. And what I find funny is I tend to identify more with current positions that look more right than not right. Smaller government, strong defense, low taxes, low regulation, right. But the funny part is when I had. Harvey on the other day, I don't know if you know his work. He wrote three felonies. Of course today. I know he is. He's right. a very impressive guy. Great guy. He, was just, he just got himself into trouble at Milton Academy. Probably. Yeah. Hey, funny, funny guy. He's running for the Harvard uh, uh, Board of Overseers. Um, and the funny thing is that Harvey is a self-described you know, leftist anti-Vietnam child of the 60s, right? Yeah. And when it comes to how we view the world, there's no daylight between us. right? So, And I find that an interesting evolution of now, looking back at my grandfather, who um, you know organized uh, the Firemen's Union in New York and created the benefits package and negotiated with Mayor LaGuardia, right? A man of the left. And there was no greater insult when he was, you know, a, a power center in New York forever to call a union man a Republican. Like, you, that, those are fighting words. You called, you said to a guy in a bar, you know, you probably voted Republican, you better get ready to get punched, right? And I look at it today and I'm thinking, he'd be voting Republican. Right, the idea that you can have speech codes, you're going to squelch things. Um, I'm, I'm curious, kind of, where do you think that idea of this kind of speech is impermissible, and we're going to shout and and yell about it rather than argue with it? Where do you think that comes from? Well, again, it comes from. I don't want to say the far left. It, it is a feature of extremist politics. Uh, um, of both the far left and uh, and the far right, but it comes centrally from a repudiation on the left of their own free speech pedigree. Um, it is incredible that the children of the Students for a Democratic Society, the, the, the children and grandchildren of the Berkeley class of 64 and uh, th those people are now the foremost advocates for 
radically restricting uh, speech. And I feel just as you do. Um, uh, I think there's all kinds of speech that we dislike, we hate. Um, and I can't think of anything worse than formal efforts to suppress it. I was just at Duke University and I was asked a similar question by a student. You know, what if um, someone like Richard Spencer were invited to speak at Duke? Shouldn't we censor him? I said, the best response to Richard Spencer is to bring him to campus and then have nobody show up because there's nothing more humiliating right. than the speaker <clears throat> in an empty hall. And you, 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 you accomplish three things. You honor your commitment to free speech, right? Um, and you, uh, you, you, you demonstrate that it's not simply a matter of a legal commitment, which Duke doesn't have because it's a private institution, but it's an ethical commitment. But you also succeed in absolutely humiliating Spencer by, by underscoring what a non-entity he really, you know, he, he really is. Vastly more effective than canceling him, censoring him, and letting him claim that he's he a martyr. is a, a martyr and that uh, institutions like a Duke or whatever it is are, are, are hypocrites um, and selective in, their, in, in the way in which they honor their, their commitments to intellectual challenge and free speech. Now, thank God I went to the University of Chicago. We went to the University of Chicago and thank God President Zimmer uh, um, made gave the university practically its brand as the place where free speech goes to, fun goes to die, but free speech goes to live. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's sad you have to make the choice, but for those of us who think fun is overvalued. <laughs> I had fun at the university. I had fun. I just, I have, I have to reverse. Be I have to remember this. I remember in 1990, we were there, right? Uh, Playboy does its annual rankings of the most fun colleges in the country, right? So say it's a list of 300, whatever the number is. And I never forget because uh, Elizabeth Bartley, who was the editor's daughter from the journal, she was in my, my dorm, right? Yeah. And she posted it on her door. What was so great was it was, say, 1 to 300. And so number one was Tulane, and number 300 was University of Chicago. And whoever was at Playboy at the time put an asterisk and said, it's important to note that numbers 2 through 299 are on a linear scale. Both one and three hundred are on a logarithmic scale because Tulane is so much more fun than number two in the University of Chicago. And I think Brigham Young was two ninety nine. No, I, I, I remember that list actually. So ah. it was uh, because I had a chance to revisit it on account of uh, one of my children who's going to one of the. I'm not going to say which one, but one of the least fun schools. Right. Uh, but. Um, uh, number 299, I believe, was West Point. Number 298 was the Naval Academy. Right. Uh, Brigham Young was somewhere in there. I forgot. So we were, Chicago was below the military academy. <laughs> interesting. That, that raises interesting questions about the Air Force Academy, by the way. Yeah. They're more uh, fun. <laughs> well, at least they get to fly. You know, that's. And that's fun. That's got to be cool. That um, is fun. Uh, so free speech, that's where we were. Look, um, I've been reflecting on this actually quite a bit because ultimately societies thrive or perish uh, or falter at least in terms of their, in terms of the way in which they honor the idea that gadflies are socially useful. Right. And that dissidents and dissenters should be listened to, not treated as heretics. If you kind of want to look at the downfall of the, the civilizational decline, say, in the Middle East, a lot of it has to do with a culture of treating dissenters as heretics um, and not being, I mean, I think of the effort, for example, in the 1990s to murder Naguib Mahfouz, you know, the greatest uh, writer, Egyptian writer of the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, he was a free thinker. And so what did fanatics try to do? They kept trying to stab him and kill him one way or another. And what happened with Naguib Mahfouz has happened with so many other... Well, they finally got Salman Rushdie in Chautauqua. <laughs> or Salman Rushdie is another great, uh, great example. And the United States stands apart because environments which foster a spirit of intellectual challenge are by definition progressive. All of the great social progress that's been made in the country in the last hundred years 
happened from people who were saying things that were deeply unpalatable to the majority at the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, Rosa Parks was a dissenter. The Stonewall, uh, the Stonewall Inn uh, folks who who revolted against police brutality, they were dissenters. I wonder what the view on gay marriage was in 1990. Right. Yeah. Probably probably 98 to two, right? Until it became uh, until it became the law of the land. And I think a very good thing, by the yeah. way. Uh, no someone like Andrew Sullivan just made the case. Yeah. And someone like Marty Peretz let him make the case in the New Republic. And people can make, you know, reach their own judgments. So the fact that we are moving away from a culture in which dissent is possible and invited, it's so difficult to express yourself freely on such a range of opinions, um, uh, a range of issues here, here in the United States today, because you think, gee, that's not the hill I want to die on, right? Right. Uh, I don't want to be the guy who says something that someone is going to find unpleasant and some vocal minority on Twitter is going to try to get me yep. canceled for, right? It, so it, you just shut up. And on one issue after another, Americans are, uh, this is, this is, by the way, uh, demonstrated in, in survey data, Americans in one area after another are afraid to voice their views. And that's un-American. I mean, that's just profoundly un-American. And it's profoundly un-American when it's not just a matter of being afraid to voice your views, say, if you're in the military or some kind of highly hierarchical... Oh, but people have lost their livelihoods because of complete lies spread about them. And, and, and without... You know, sounding too pompous is part of why I set up this podcast. Is luckily I'm in a position I can't be canceled. I work in a, in mining and finance, and everyone agrees with me, right? So no one, if, if someone on the Twitter mob starts screaming that I said something they don't like about COVID vaccines, my job's not at stake because anyone I work with is going to be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? So for those of us who are uncancelable, I think it, it's even more important to make a lot of noise. For those who would love to say something, but they got a middle, man middle management job at Amazon and they don't want to say anything. And the tragedy is that the very uh, um, industries that should be at the forefront of expanding um, the 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 ambit of thought and speech and ideas and controversy are the ones that are most afraid of it. So, I mean, anyone who is sort of paying attention to what's happening in the publishing industry where every book is subject to a sensitivity read. Madness. Has to be horrified because it's precisely publishers who should be in the business of pushing and pricking and prodding. Instead, they just want to serve up soft soap. And, yeah. and that's it's unbelievable that mining executives should be the people who are actually prepared to say difficult things or unpopular things. Whereas well, those we've been attacked forever. The streets are, 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 are quaking in our boots. Yeah. We um, don't care. Like, as a member of the New York Coal Trade Association and someone who's financed oil wells, can, I can't tell you how much I don't care what, what anyone's got to say about. Um, how, but one thing I think is important to think about, not just publishing, but I do think a lot of the kind of trends on social media, which obviously have been, been highlighted, but I've got the proud distinction of having been kicked off LinkedIn forever. And here's why. This is just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some maniac has decided to start spewing anti-Jewish nonsense straight out of the protocols of the Elder Zion, right? Just mm -hmm. craziness. And so LinkedIn has a set of policies about kind of polite speech and just a, 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 a you know, they're trying to maintain an atmosphere that doesn't turn into Twitter, right? So they're trying to maintain a professionalism. So I flag this. This seems to me to be an obvious violation of their of their principles, right? Just craziness. Like all American Jews are homicidal maniacs that are hell-bent on genocide. Just go look at what they're teaching Yeshivot, right? Nuts. So I flag it for LinkedIn. The best part is I get a response in like 90 seconds saying, this doesn't violate LinkedIn's policies whatsoever, right? Okay, well, fine. If this craziness doesn't violate LinkedIn's policies, as a free speech absolutist, great. I'm going to respond. So I respond, pointing at the fallacy and the ridiculousness of their non-points. Guess who gets censored and banned from LinkedIn? Me, for pointing out the anti-Jewish hatred that is a logical extension of the BDS crap 
that has found a home on college campuses for 20 years. And, yeah, and this and happened to a friend of mine recently who got banned from Twitter for a week until she made a wrote an article about it and somehow was mysteriously unbanned right. or pointing out that Twitter is routinely um, allowing content that in, that encourages self-harm, you know, basically right. teenagers cutting themselves, that kind of thing. Um, and instead of Twitter curbing images of self-harm, they censored her. Right. So, I mean, I am not a fan of Elon Musk, when, but when I read this morning that he plans to cut 75% of Twitter staff, to start. I had to cheer. <laughs> I had to cheer. Yep. And I think, why stop at 75%, right? <laughs> Look, I think Twitter is a sore. I think it brings out the very worst in worst. people. 280 characters means it's a zone for insults and put-downs and a sort of you know verbal grunting. I'm off the off the medium, and I'm very glad. Uh, I'm very glad of it. But if people want to be on that medium, if you want to walk into a sword, don't be surprised by what you smell. Right. And and, and that's that's what it is. Um, I also believe that you know newspapers should enforce standards in terms of fairness and balance, and also concerns about obscenity. I think are absolutely uh, valid. So. You know, there are limiting principles here, but they should be at the widest possible edges, right, rather than this increasingly narrow uh, window of what's permitted, which usually winds up being what's what's fine to say if you're on the left, but uh, not if you're on the right. Yeah. Do you see any kind of broad trends that would that would say, say the pendulum might swing the other way or is it still going the, going the wrong way? Uh, no, for sure. I mean, I think a lot about my 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 good friend Barry Weiss, who is killing it on Substack. Oh yeah, she great stuff, great stuff she's got. Right, and uh, you know, she proves that uh, one of the great things about this country is that when um, uh, legacy industries or establishments or institutions start to become ossified and start kicking out people who uh, ought to be thriving in those places. Um, they find something new yep. and technologies arise that uh, make it possible for them to, at least the most talented among them, to thrive. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is the, the, the lessons of IBM and Xerox and Kodak are as alive in the media, should be as alive in the media industry as they are anywhere else, right? right. People are going to figure out a new and a better way to get around the kind of uh, mental or ideological blinkers with which the established players, uh, you know, operate. Uh, and and so I'm ultimately, I'm very bullish on the United States because we still are better than every alternative that I can think of. We've been through periods before of cultural upheaval, censoriousness uh, and um, and a sense of decline. And we've always found renewal, not in the obvious places, but actually in the secret places, in the garages uh, right. and basements and, you know, in the back of the mind of someone in whom we didn't see much potential, uh, but who find ways to, to rise and revolutionize the system. So I'm sure that we're, we're, we're going to figure it out. It's just that this is going to be one hell of a bumpy plane ride before we finally um, before we finally land at home. Well, I will I will take that optimism in stride, and we'll we'll come to a close there. I think. Look, the, look uh, at that beautiful flag you got behind you. I mean, greatest greatest thing ever, and it's done by a local artist. Um, uh, it's all beach glass and shells. And as I say, if it were slightly more subtle, it'd be tacky. But it's gorgeous as it is. No, I love it. I've been admiring it this whole this whole time. And plus the book you got behind Brilliant you. Brilliant book. Oh my god, everyone should everyone should go get at least a dozen copies and give them out. Holidays are coming. Absolutely brilliant. Um <laughs> it's been uh it's been a lot of fun, right? I love it. Part of the reason it's sitting on my desk is it weighs about 95 pounds. So it's really hard to put on a wall. Yeah, you don't want to mount that. <laughs> um, really it, it was a disastrous attempt to mount it. Luckily, I was there when it failed. So now it sits here. Um but yeah, no, I've got, I, it's it's fascinating. I've got a similar faith that uh, <clears throat> that that this ideological 
forces often have they never they never achieve their in, in their goal because human nature and you know I tell constantly you know, employees who come to work with me on Wall Street there are three areas of human endeavor that require absolute acceptance to make progress that is Buddhism alcoholism and finance and there are probably more but if you don't accept reality you're fixing the wrong problem right if your problem is you're drunk. Nothing is going to help you unless you stop drinking whiskey. <laughs> the problem is, you know, you're so when the, the left tried when Biden came in, and they lie about this too. Oil and gas leases, they restrict giving them out to oil and gas companies. They put pressure on banks not to lend to coal companies, right? So all these all these ideologically driven things that have made the cost of energy skyrocket in America, which they refuse to believe admit they're doing. Um, but we in the industry know that they're doing because we're we're feeling it. Um, but the greatest part about, for example, coal. So banks have been reluctant to lend to to coal businesses. And I actually had an old coal colleague on the show a year ago talking about this. Um, but I just got the phone yesterday with a bunch of investors who are structuring an NFT structure using blockchain uh, structures to create rights to coal offtake, which are they are now peddling successfully to coal-fired power plants, to steel manufacturers, to everyone. So totally circumventing the commercial lending system. Great. So you're going to try to put pressure on the point of the system that you, Elizabeth Warren, believe is the choke point to finance. Well, no. I mean, it's a pain in the ass. It took 18 months to, to do a workaround, but the workaround is happening. Um, it's been fascinating to watch that change, that that sort of innovation coming out of the boring coal industry, you know, absent the pressure of government on banks, there's not a single coal executive I know would have been like, yeah, tell me where I have this crypto. They wouldn't have listened, but they were forced to. And we had someone else screaming and yelling on Twitter. I couldn't resist about, you know, the, the, the skyrocketing differential between CEO pay and median pay, right? All of that goes back to Bill Clinton when they decided to make it illegal for listed companies to deduct more than a million dollars in salary from top executives. Their insane idea being, we're going to not let companies you know, pay their executives what they're worth, so they're going to therefore pay them less. Well, the companies looked at that, and their lawyers got smart, and they looked at it and said, all right, well, we won't give them cash. We'll give them stock options, which then happened right before the boom in Silicon Valley and the boom in equities for the past 30 years. And so all of that, what Liz Warren now screams about, pay discrepancy, is a direct result of Democrat policies designed to put their finger on the scale of the economy to achieve an outcome they thought would be better. And the irony never ends. So every time they try to touch something to change it in the way they want, inevitably it does not work out the way they want, which should be a warning tale, but it never is somehow. It never is. It's an old story. Chris, it's great to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. And my, uh, we'll my, my pleasure, my honor. You bet. Take care. Later on. Cheers. Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.